Kelly Rimmer's sweeping World War II historical suspense has sold more than two million copies worldwide and made international bestseller lists which include the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal and USA Today. Welcome to the joys of binge reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler. And on Binge Reading Today, Kelly talks about her latest historical saga, The Paris Agent. Two otherwise ordinary women become spies in World War II France in a powerful story which threads their lives, their two real-life women, into history, leaving an indelible story of courage and family ties. In our giveaway this week, we have Paige Turner's For the Beach, wonderfully entertaining, light-hearted holiday mix to download for free, including Hope Redeemed, a Spanish novella, number six in my own of Gold and Blood, California Mystery Series. You'll find the links for where to download these free books in the show notes for this episode on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. And remember, if you enjoy the show, leave us a review so others will find us too. Word of mouth is the best way for other people to discover the show and great books they will love to read. But now, here's Kelly. Hello there, Kelly, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hi, Jenny. It's so good to be here. Nothing. You're somewhere in central New South Wales, Australia, and but we've got a lot of international listeners. So for them, New South Wales is the state that has Sydney as its name. That's right. That's, That's right. Yeah, as you know, it's quite a big state, and yeah, there's this big mountain range at the edge of Sydney, and then there's this whole beautiful countryside on the other side. That's wonderful. You've written about something a long distance from Australia. The Paris Agent is your latest book. It's a fascinating dual timeline mystery with multiple romance lines. Moving from England in World War II to the 1970s with the daughter of one of those people that was involved in the war. They've written more than a dozen novels and the most recent ones have all been historical. I'm interested in how you made that transition and how you feel about historicals themselves. I didn't mean to become a historical fiction writer. I wrote my second book, which was published in Italy, was set around the forced adoption scandal in Australia in the 50s, 60s and 70s. And that was kind of my first taste of historical fiction. But as I said, I I wasn't a huge historical fiction fan and I was following stories that piqued my interest. And this all culminated in a story that I'd been daydreaming about for a long time since I was pregnant with my son. He's 14 this year. And it was inspired by my own family history. My grandparents were Polish Catholics who were displaced by the war. And so I wrote this book called The Things We Cannot Say. I loved that experience so much that I've accidentally continued with historical fiction since then. (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. I didn't actually realize there was a family connection with that book, Things We Cannot Say. Yes. Yeah. My grandparents, it's not exactly their story, but it was inspired by the fact that 
we didn't know what their story was and we we never will. My grandfather in particular is a complete mystery because they came to Australia, a displaced persons camp in where they lived for several years and they ended up in Fremantle and then from Fremantle to Blacktown and Sydney. They really reinvented themselves after that. I was in, in my early 30s reflecting on the fact that I'm part of an Australian family. How did we end up here? <laughs> Grandparents were Polish. Yeah. So it came out of that. Wonderful. Tell us something about Paris Agent, the story's premise. Tell us how you got into this. My daughter's name is Violet. It's her family name from my husband's side. And when I was pregnant with her and we were talking about names, you do the Googling thing, trying to think about famous people with this name or what the meaning of the name is. And I stumbled upon Violet Salbo, who was an SOE agent in the F section of the SOE. Her story was so inspiring and had stuck with me. I loved the idea that we're naming my daughter after someone so incredible. And I had always intended, always hoped that I would come up with the right premise to write a book that was inspired by her. And maybe two or three years ago, I heard a podcast about um, Diana Rowden, who was another SOE agent who I had never heard of, even though I'd done a little bit of reading about the SOE. And I also found her to be just such an incredible woman. And so the idea for this book kind of came out of their stories, their real life stories. It's fiction. I've taken a few liberties here and there with their stories and they were actually close friends. But in my book, my characters inspired by them are friends. But where I could, I followed the real history. Yes. Now, in your story, Charlotte, the daughter, the recently bereaved, the mother has died. She's an only child and her father's terribly distressed by the death of his wife. And she starts to feel that perhaps it would help him get over his grief if he reconnected with someone that he'd always said he wanted to find in the war, a friend. So she decides that she's going to help him to find this man who he credits with saving his life at one stage. And she opens, as they say, the proverbial can of worms, doesn't she? Tell us a bit really about does. that. Yeah, so her best of intentions, they decide to look into his past. He knows he was injured in his service in the SOE, but he can't remember much about the day he was injured because he's got a brain injury and it was quite, obviously there's a fair degree of trauma there as well. And so they, they scratch the surface of the past, just trying to find the agent who he believes saved his life. And through that investigation, realize that the whole scenario was so much more complicated than he remembered. And they discover the stories of Josie and Eloise, who are my two agents in my story, my protagonists in my historical threads of the story. Yes. Part of its foundation is the understanding that's emerged since the war that the special operations executives, the branch of the British Separate Service that handled all of the dispensing of agents over France, the ones that were so tremendously brave just to jump out of planes into enemy territory and work to support the resistance there, that some of those people were betrayed from within the SOE even before they set foot on French soil. And that's all emerged rather more recently. So can you talk a little bit about that whole situation? And when did you become aware of it? Yeah, I started reading a book by M.R.D. Foch, who was the official historian for the SOE, and quickly realized that it's such a different world. It's only 80 odd years ago, but it's such a different world that the SOE was operating in. And information was so much harder to move around. And so they, Michael Foch, M.R.D. Foch, talks about the fog of war, which is a phrase I've used in the book to explain how the SOE lost agents and and lost information. And now, if we had a major event like a war, obviously, you would have data retention policies and you'd be 
squirreling away every little piece of information that you can, but that wasn't the case, particularly at the end of the war. But there were scenarios, there's plenty of scenarios where agents landed and were met by, by Nazi troops on the ground as they were landing. In hindsight, it's very clear that there were people in the SOE who were betraying information through to the Nazis. But at the time, they were operating blind in so many ways. As soon as I came across that idea and this gentleman named Henri Dercourt, who was thought to have potentially been quite senior in the SOE, very good friends with the second in command, best friends, and was eventually tried for being a double agent, but was acquitted, most likely because his friend Nicholas Boddington perjured himself to get his friend off. As soon as I came across that story, I thought it would be really interesting to write about these agents who have the best of intentions, who have taken to their training with every ounce of energy and, and dedication that they have, and who go off hoping that they can do something to turn the tide of the war, but they're really fighting an uphill battle because there are people within the SOE who are working against them. Yes. And the other terrible thing is that they did not enjoy the normal protection of the rules of engagement of war, did they? Tell us what their likely fate was when they did get captured. That's right. They were not uniformed. And they didn't have the protections of the Geneva Convention, so they were treated terribly. Just the most horrific stories about their treatment if they were captured, because the Nazis saw them as illegitimate operatives in their territory. They would kill them or capture them and basically torture them. It was horrendous. The professor that you referred to, he obviously was a real-life person. In your book, Charlotte and her dad make contact with him to see what he can tell them about this agent that her father's tracking down. Tell us about the process of balancing fact and fiction with that. I mean, the others are real-life characters as well. You've got a lot of real-life characters whose stories you're dealing with. How do you manage that fact and fiction aspect of it? Yeah, in this book in particular, I found that really challenging. And I've written quite an extensive author's note at the end of this book explaining what's fact and what's fiction, because there are so many real people who inspired different aspects of this story. And I've connected them in ways that they didn't necessarily, the real characters didn't necessarily connect because as a novelist, particularly as a historical fiction novelist, you're trying to balance honouring history and people's real stories with Talia cohesive and engaging story. So there's this creative tension versus the ethics of using people's real stories. This time, because I followed the history quite closely in many aspects of the book, but in other aspects, I have taken liberties and moved things around and moved people around. So it's all there in the author's note. But Michael Foot, he, he wrote as he operated professionally as MRD Foot, was the official historian to the SOE. And he did write a book about the SOE, which is how we know so much about it. It, it took him years to get it published. And in 1964, he was finally given permission to publish it. And that's why we can, from the comfort of our homes, read and get a real insight into the things that were going on. But the secrecy around the SOE was so intense that it was drilled into these agents from the very beginning. They would be approached and recruited from the very beginning. It was really drilled into them that every aspect of this is absolutely top secret. And so even after the war, the government did obscure and there were documents destroyed accidentally, documents destroyed intentionally. There was a fire. There was genuinely a fire in the Baker Street records, mostly took out records related to the Belgium section of the SOE, but it did destroy a whole bunch of information that would have been great for historians to access. And so I used that, all of those scenarios, and then wrote a fictional version of Michael Foote because... I, this character was going to be integral in my story, but, but I think where Michael Foot alive, he would be very disinterested in being the star of a novel. <laughs> so 
him personally, you know, I haven't based the actual character on him, but rather on his job. Yes, yes. And I did look up Henri Derecourt because I was, you know, rather fascinated by the whole story. And I see that he died in rather mysterious circumstances after the war. Yes. Although, as you're saying, he wasn't convicted, it seems like his reputation was indelibly tarnished. Tell me what we think happened to him because he died mysteriously. Bonnie never Indeed. found. That's right. Yeah. He found it very difficult to reestablish himself even after he was acquitted. And he eventually ended up working in Laos for basically the nickname of the route he was flying. He was a pilot was Air Opium. So that should give you some insight into what she was doing. And he died, I think it was 1962, but he was on a plane that was loaded with gold and it crashed and his body was never recovered. There is speculation that he maybe faked his own death and started a new life. It's so unfair to think that this man will get off scot-free. It is so unfair. I hate the thought of it, but it is a possibility most likely. Were the bodies of the other people on the plane found? You know, I don't know that, but I assume that the gold was recovered if there was yeah. gold there. Yeah. I can't imagine yeah. a plane full of gold crushing and nobody bothering to get the gold back. No. It's very intricately plotted and I'd be really interested, and I'm sure the listeners would through, to hear how you approach writing a book like this. What's your process? I'm not a super organized person in any other facet of my life, but when I write, I am an obsessive plotter. Before I start writing, I usually know the first and last sentences. I'll have an idea of the first and last sentences, but I do know exactly what will happen in every scene. And I usually plan out, particularly with a multiple narrative story like this, I generally have an idea when I'm going to switch narratives. I write quite a long outline and then I convert that into a Scrivener to manage my writing. So I move that across into Scrivener and then I write each chapter, not necessarily in order, because if I feel like I'm getting blocked, it usually means I haven't spent enough time daydreaming about that scene. And so I will skip the scene and go on something else that does feel like it's going to flow. But I know basically where the story's going. It doesn't mean that there aren't surprises. I get surprised. I'll be writing and I'll think, oh, that's a good idea. And I go with the, that creative energy when it comes. But I also track my timelines really extensively with software called Aeon Timeline. And the timeline for this book was crazy. That <laughs> things everywhere. I usually have one timeline for real history. And then I have timelines for each character and where they intersect. And if I'm moving things or taking liberties with things, I make notes about that so I know when I've done it. So it is a weird combination of obsessive planning and then the chaos of creative mind. The other thing that made this one slightly more complicated again is that, of course, all the agents had two names. They had yes. their real name and they had yes. their name in the field. So even as yes. a reader, you have to try and keep track of when it's mm. Josie. Now, hang on, which one's Josie? Because mm. that's her agent mm. name. So there, yes. that must have added to it all. Well, you know, they actually often had more than one name. So they would have an operative name and they'd have all different names that they would use in the field because they'd have multiple different fake IDs. And so it was actually a case of, I need to simplify this because I can't really have one character that has six or eight names through the book. So I've kept it to a few, but, but it is a case of like part of the intrigue of it and part of that high secrecy that I was talking about is that these people really abandoned their own identity to become other people. And so I've tried to give readers a hint of that in the way that I've done the using their code names. Yeah. Before we, we began recording, you also were mentioning that you quite often use dictation as part of your production process. Where does that come in? Well, it's really maybe third. I had, I had Ross River fever and I had very sore hands and I was, was really struggling to type. 
and I uh, I go a little bit crazy when I'm not writing. It's my favorite thing to do. And so I was desperately trying to find a way to keep writing without breaking my joints. I started tinkering around with, first of all, dictating into an old school manual transcriber. And then down the track, I started using Exopic or Dragon Dictate. And at first, it was really difficult because you have to train yourself or you have to train yourself. It's a really different process. But over time, it's become second nature. So now I almost all of my first draft is usually dictated. I then edit with the keyboard. I try to write conversationally. I don't want the book to feel inaccessible. I always want my stories to feel like you're having a conversation with a friend and they're just telling you something that happened. And so for me, speaking the story, the first draft of the story is a really integral part of that process of getting the tone and the voice right. Fantastic. And so then do you put it into Scrivener after you've done yeah. that dictate? Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, I can't dictate straight into Scrivener. I usually dictate just into a notepad or something and then move it into Scrivener where I pretty it up. But I also, I don't edit as I go. So a lot of writers, I think, do this. I write the first draft, race to the end. I write as quickly as I can to finish the first draft. I am a much better editor than I am writer. And <laughs> that first draft is a mess. Well, if it comes out good in the end, you don't have to be worried about that, do you? I try. I don't want to break the process because it is working quite well so far, but yes, it is pretty messy. <laughs> yeah. Look, we've mentioned, I think probably you've done about five or six historical novels now, haven't you? Mm. Two of the more recent ones that preceded this, one was set in Germany and the other in Poland. Now you've mentioned your Polish origins, but this is another Polish book. So the German one was The German Wife and the yes. Polish one was The Warsaw Orphan. And both of those dealt with fascinating through life situations. The German Wife deals with Operation Paperclip. I've never heard the name of that operation, but it was a controversial secret US intelligence program that employed former Nazis after World War II. Now, these were the famous scientists, the ones who'd known about the atomic bomb and so forth. But tell us about the premise for The German Wife and how you turned it into an interesting novel. I, yeah, I was at, at Parks, which is, there's a radio telescope there that helped relay the moon footage when the moon landing happened. And I was wondering, there was a big commemorative festival for the moon landing. And I was wondering through the festival and there was this tent and in like a marquee. And in the marquee, they had historical information about that event. And I've read this one line that said from 1950, the Americans took German scientists to the US and they worked on the early rocket program, which eventually led to the US landing on the moon. And I've read that line and I was writing other World War II books. I think I was probably finishing the Warsaw Orphan at the time. And I, the idea that the US would take Nazi scientists and basically lift them, dump them in America and leave them as free citizens because they saw the science as valuable enough to ignore any unsavory aspects of their part. That blew my mind. I just could not believe that it was a thing. And I quickly fell down a rabbit hole of Operation Paperclip researching it. By the time I got home that night, it's about an hour and a half drive. I think by the time I got home, I had the idea for the book pretty much co concreted in. It just, I found it to be so incredible just like how does everybody not know about this even americans don't know very much about this because of, because it, it was initially kept so secret and the americans very much wanted to convince the public that they would yes they were bringing some germans over but if any of them were nazis then they can't come these are these are good germans you know but it was much more complex than that yes. and so the story kind of follows his character he's very loosely based on Werner von brown 
and who was a like the chief US rocket scientist, but who was also an SS officer back in Germany and, and was potentially right at the cusp of some absolutely hideous aspects to the German rocket program. And so it kind of follows the story of, of a family involved in the, in the Nazi rocket program and their journey to the US and what it was like to landing in Huntsville and be mingling it freely in this this town, this little town full of Americans. Some of them hated the Germans and didn't want them there. Some of them was because the town was kind of dying. Some of them were just so grateful to have the rocket program base there that they were happy to overlook any suspicions that they had. So it's very, very interesting stuff. They were effectively rehabilitating Nazis, weren't they? They were, yeah. yeah. Or, or at least whitewashing their past and hoping yes. nobody ever found out about it. Yeah. 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 And then the Warsaw Orphan was inspired by a real-life Jewish heroine who saved the lives of thousands of Jewish children. And we know a a number of these heroic figures, but I don't think we've heard very much about this one. Yeah, I was in Poland in 2017 researching for the things we cannot say, and I was at the the Paulin, which is a museum of of Jewish history in Warsaw. And it, it is the, it's actually the, my favorite museum that I've ever been to. It's this incredible building and this incredible, incredible displays of thousand years of Jewish history in Poland. And I was in the gift shop afterwards and I saw this book called Arena's Children. And I had never heard of Arena Sendler, but I, I bought the book and then started reading it and really quickly became, again, child rabbit hole. There was a Polish Catholic woman, a social worker who she coordinated this team of about 12 people to go into the Warsaw Ghetto and then sneak children out and then to hide them in Catholic families on the other side of the walls around the ghetto. And all through Poland, they managed to get them out into convents and orphanages and they do things like they would have the Jewish boys leave as girls so that nobody would check that they were circumcised or not. They would dye children's hair, they would teach them Polish, they would teach them Catholic prayers so that they could, if the Nazis tried to interrogate them, they would be able to pass convincingly as Catholic. But the thing that really struck me as I read about Irena Sendler was that in lots of the literature about her, there is this little phrase like Irena Sendler and her team of 12, mostly women workers. And these women, these unnamed women, for the most part women, every day were risking their lives to sneak into the ghetto, which is like hell on earth, sneak in, risk their lives to sneak children out. And the historical record doesn't even name them. And so I was really interested to write a book that was based around a member of that team. And it, it's not a sequel to The Things We Cannot Say, but my main character from The Warsaw Open is a minor character in The Things We Cannot Say. Oh, that's gorgeous. But you started writing fiction. Was there a kind of light bulb moment? Because I know you say now that you just love writing so much. It's essential for your being. Has it always been like that? Yeah, my dad tells me that in kindergarten I told him I was going to be a writer. I don't remember that. I remember crying in kindergarten because we had these storyboards with little Velcro words that we could make sentences with on felt. And my teacher made me put it down to go out to the playground to play. <laughs> it's one of my first memories. But it really switched on for me when I read Heidi. I think I was eight and I read Heidi and I remember we were living in Sydney at the time and I remember just being so absorbed by that book and and I'm in the Swiss Alps with the grandfather and I'm smelling the hay and eating the goat's cheese and then I put the book down and I'm in my bedroom in Western Sydney you know and I was just like what magic is this and so I always wrote for fun I was probably 13 or 14 when I wrote my first kind of novel length handwritten stack of papers like this but it was always my hobby over the years I just wrote and wrote and wrote and I would edit 
and then discard. You know, I was writing just for myself. And so it has always been my thing. I love to read too. And I think that's how I learned to write was from reading voraciously. That is essential to my life as breathing. I don't, I just can't imagine not doing it. And what those things that you wrote, say in your teens, what sort of books were they? What? They were awful. <laughs> they were terrible. I'm so happy that we lost them all. When we <laughs> I would be so embarrassed to read them now. They were all kinds of things. I've always had a real interest. I, I don't write in this genre now, but I've always had a real interest in speculative fiction. And so lots of reimaginings of the future, some quite dark and dire because I was a moody teenager. And then other times I've always been fascinated about connections between people. So even then I was tinkering with family dramas and stories about people without teams. I really like the idea of writing about unlikely people that make teams. That's always been my, doesn't matter what the setting is. That's really at the heart of all of my stories. Yes. Where did you get in the intersection to seriously get in coverage? How did that happen? I had it in my head. So keep in mind, I was like seriously writing from 14. And I always thought that by the time I was 35, I'd be a, a career writer. I don't, I don't know where that number came from. It came from somewhere, but always I thought 35. By then I'll be a proper grown up and I'll be able to write. That's how it's going to be. And I wake up on my 33rd birthday and I had never anyone any of my <laughs> And I had this real crisis that day of like, I'm now like five. It takes a long time to get published and I didn't even try. I made a spreadsheet of all different publishers. There were big publishers there and little publishers there. And I, it all seemed too hard, to be honest with you. I would look at publishing form submission guidelines and it'd be like, format the document this way. And we are, I was very intimidated by all of that, especially because even some of my closest friends didn't know I was writing. My husband knew that I was a writer, but I don't think he understood how determined I was and how, how important it was to me. Because I was quite embarrassed about it. I always used to think, who am I to think I can tell a story that people would want to read? That seems silly, but really the prevailing voice in my head for a long time. And I let some friends read early draft of what became my book, Me Without You, which was my first published book. And they were so encouraging and they were all so shocked, but they were so kind about it. And I was out at dinner with some of them and they were saying to me, you've got to do this. You're so good at this. Give it go. And on my spreadsheet, there was this little tiny digital publisher in the UK that was very new. And, but I thought they had really good potential to grow and their, their name's Booker Chore and I submitted to them and they took that book. Pasha has bought them out and they're massive, probably one of the best digital publishers in the world. So I went out for dinner with some friends who were very encouraging about the early drafts that they'd read. And when I went home, I really impulsively, it was actually middle of the night, exactly what you're not supposed to do. I submitted the manuscript and they ultimately published it and my whole career started from there. I did four books with them and they grew and grew and I wrote their coattails and here we are. Yeah, fantastic. So now Bookature is owned by a big publishing company out there. Yeah, they are now. Uh, they weren't at the time. When I first signed with them, it was Oliver Rhodes, who was the founder, who had worked with some big publishers before. It was actually his pedigree that attracted me to the company. I read some interviews he'd done and he seemed to have such a great vision for digital publishing. And so it was just him and a part-time publicist. And now they've got dozens of staff and they've grown exponentially over the years since then. Yes. Well, then give us an idea before you got to that key moment at 33, when you looked at yourself and thought, how am I going to get published by the time I'm 35? What had you done from the time you left school until then? And that, has that in any way helped or hindered your writing career now? 
I'd worked in all sorts of really interesting jobs, but it, most recently I'd been working in IT and software development. Sometimes when I've done writing workshops and I show people my process and how regimented it is and how much I plan before I write and how much I rely on different software pieces to, you know, to bring it all together. I think that is probably all informed by that background working with technology. And other than that, publishing and IT are polar ends of a spectrum in the sense of IT is so male dominated and it's such a big, quite a regimented professional industry. There's a lot of handshaking and deep voices and and publishing, I work mostly with women and there's a lot of hugging. It can be a tough industry too, but it is much warmer in some ways. So I think I came in and had a bit of culture shock at first, but, but every experience as a writer, every experience you have in some way becomes gold for you to mine. So it probably is all in there somewhere. And you are based in semi-rural New South Wales and you're writing European cycles. Is that difficult sometimes? Do you have to do a lot of traveling to resource libraries or how do you manage that gap? Well, I, I love traveling and then the pandemic happened and it made it so much more difficult to go and be in the places where I wanted to be as I was researching. But it, we do live in such a digital age. And I think if for someone like me, I'm somewhat computer savvy and I found it quite easy to access what I needed to. For example, with the Warsaw Orphan, there was this one particular resource I needed to use an archive of documents that had been st stowed away under the Warsaw Ghetto and then discovered. There were resources there that would help me to paint an accurate picture of life in the ghetto. And that was the first year of the pandemic. So I had planned a trip, which I postponed because I went on tour in the U.S., and then I came home and I was getting ready to go again and then no travel for years. But I was able to access all of that. If not online, I could order what I needed online. So I think if you're digitally savvy, this is a really good time to be writing because it's almost unlimited what you can access via contacts on the internet or resources on the internet. Fantastic. Look, there's one nutshell question that I like to ask everybody, but if there was one thing that you see as the secret of your success as an author in your creative career, what would it be? Sometimes I've had writers say to me, it all happened quite easy for you. Like the first publisher I submitted to took my book and published it. And then that publisher made that book a success. And why did it happen so quickly? But there was 20 years of me practicing. And I think as a writer, you have to be willing to throw away words. And it sounds probably counterintuitive, but sometimes I've spoken to writers who say, I've finished my book and I'm going to find a publisher now. Sometimes your first book is a practice book or your first few books are practice books. And you've got to be willing to let it go. And sometimes you've got to just write things for yourself. It's for me, even now, I, I tend to overwrite and I'll have many more words than I need. And I have to be willing to let many, many words go at that final stage. And I think understanding that even in terms of the daydreaming, I do so much daydreaming. Even when I'm walking my dogs or putting around the house, I'm in the story all the time. And you have to be able to accept that not everything you experience as you're planning and daydreaming about the story will end up in the final version. But that's very wise advice. When you started out with writing, what was your main goal and have you achieved it? I dreamed about getting published. That seemed like this unlikely lofty goal. And then I thought, oh, if I could write full time, that would be incredible. And then that happened. And as a kid, the ultimate, like the ridiculous high dream was that I would be a writer who owned a bookstore. Well, now I own a bookstore and I write full time. I have been incredibly fortunate that it's all fallen into place just as I didn't dare imagine that it would, but, you know, secretly hoped. So, yeah. 
Well, that's fascinating. Where is your bookstore? So it's about, it's in a town called Orange, which is near the biggest regional city near where I live. And it's, it's about 20 minutes away from where I live. And we purchased it last year from this amazing couple that had established it and owned it for 25 years. And is it digital as well? I mean, it, can, can this just find it? Um, they can find us online. So the store is called Collins Booksellers Orange. And so we're on all the usual platforms, you know, all of the social medias on the web. Yeah, and it, it is primarily a print face-to-face bookstore, but we do have online things as well. And what do the people at Orange want to read? Have you influenced the stock control any since you've taken over? I love commercial fiction. So I love accessible stories that people lose themselves in. We have a really wide range of books. I, I don't know that I've influenced it, but I think sometimes booksellers, not the ones that I bought the bookstore off, but there are other booksellers who sometimes really prioritize rabbit ears, quality literature and, and literary fiction. But I think people, particularly young people, are reading a lot of, a lot, a lot of commercial fiction. We have so many young people who come in to the store and they'll say things, they'll be a little bit embarrassed, like, oh, I heard about this book on BookTok or, oh, my friend was reading this book, but it's only, it's only this romance or it's only this fantasy. I think that every book that anyone picks up generally has something to teach them and there's no shame in reading any kind of literature. So we're trying to stock a nice wide range of books that people just love to read. That's really, at the end of the day, what we're aiming to do. Oh, that sounds wonderful because I, one of my favourite little things really is that quite often I think with literary fiction, people get guilted into reading some yes. of those books. Yes, Actually, two of my favorite books are literary fiction books. I love it too. But I think that the more that we try and force people into literature, that's a little harder to lose yourself in sometimes, you know, yeah. you have to focus just that little bit more and it puts a barrier there between the reader and reading as a hobby. And so whatever the entry point is, I don't care if you're reading children and books and you're 30, that's completely fine. If you're reading, it's good. Absolutely. And it's the same thing. If any book that's good enough that people go into a bookstore and ask for it. Deserves to be published. A hundred percent. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Look, it's good that you've mentioned about your reading taste because that's the next thing I'd like to ask you about. We always do like to ask our authors about the things they're reading at the moment. Tell us what your passions are at the moment. I read just about everything except horror and crime. I'm a real fraidy cat. I've such a vivid imagination. I can't read crime and I can't read horror, but I'll read pretty much anything else. I love to listen to memoirs on audio. And at the moment, I've got, oh, goodness, I think I've got four books on the go. I've got a galley that I'm reading, and I'm reading Dear Mrs. Bird by AJ Pierce, which I think everybody in the world read a few years ago and I somehow miss. And yeah. I'm reading All Adults Here by Anna Stroud, which is fantastic. What is the other one? I've got, see, I've got like my computer bag book, and then I've got my laptop, like my, my handbag book, and then I've got my beside the bed. <laughs> and I've got a Kindle and then I have my audio books on my phone. So this always, it's a bit ridiculous, but I always have lots on the go. <laughs> That's gorgeous. Looking back down the tunnel of time, if there was one thing about your creative career you'd change, what would it be? Uh, I think I've been so fortunate. I can't complain about much of anything really. In some ways, I wish I'd been a little braver to try and be published earlier. Sometimes people say to me at events, oh, I want to be a writer, but it's too late because I'm X years old. And I always say, this is not ballet. It is never too late. And in fact, sometimes a few more years gives you wisdom to write in a way that if you can't get published at 20, you might be able to get published at 30 because seasons change and 
the books that you're writing might be something publishers want. But for me, I was a coward for such a long time. It was so precious to me that I didn't think I'd handle criticism well. And then it turned out that I handled criticism just fine. You know, once a book is out there, it's people can love it and people can hate it. It's not my business anymore. But for so many years, that really held me back. And if I had a time machine, I probably would go back and shake myself a little earlier and say, come on, you love this so much. Just try. What's next for Kelly, the author, in terms of what have you got on your desk for the next 12 months? Or even in terms of the publicity tours, what have you got on? I'm about to start a new book, but I'm still working on the premise. So I can't say too much about it, but I will be writing I've got a little bit of Australian touring in the next couple of weeks, but not too much. And for the most part, I'll just be writing, I think. And I think this year, I've got this side fun project, which is a speculative fiction project that I'll probably work on a little bit this year too. Although I don't know if I'll ever publish it. That one is just my fun, personal fun side thing. Right. And do you enjoy interacting with readers and where can they find you online? Oh, yes. I am. My website is kellyrimmer.com and all of my social links are there. So I'm mostly on Instagram and Facebook, but I've got email and the other bits and pieces there too that readers can find. And that book that you're working on, is it another European historical or something? Quite well, different? all I'll say is it is another historical. Okay. Historical. That's good. <laughs> uh, that's lovely, Kelly. Look, thank you so much for your time. I think we have gone over our 30 minutes, but it's been a delight to talk. Oh, it's so nice to meet you, Jenny, and thanks for having me. Next week on Binge Reading, award-winning Australian author Mark Brandy with his latest poignant small-town mystery, a coming-of-age story titled Southern Aurora. Jimmy is a kid growing up fast on the poorest street in town. He tries to do everything right and look after his mum and his younger brother, but small-town life is unforgiving if you're from the other side of the tracks. That's it for today. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Happy reading.